Y'all worry about the future of the church. <laughs> you just think about Derek. Derek knows what's happening. Don't you worry about the future of the church. The church is in the hands of people who are listening and pray. And Derek knows what it's like to pray. You can't, do, you can't get down there and you can't do that without having prayed a time or two his own self. Hmm. Well, uh, quick one more word of, um, what's my word? Advertisement. Advertisement. I knew there was a word. Um, one more word about Lent. I want to stress, stress it to you because it starts this Wednesday. Uh, I think that I did fail to say to you in the announcements, this is Ash Wednesday coming up. And you will want to come and hear Reverend Michael's great sermon on that occasion. And one Sunday during Lent, uh, we think the first Sunday in April, I don't remember which Sunday in Lent that is, Reverend Janice will be preaching for us and Reverend Kristen will be preaching on Good Friday. So mark your calendars. These will be high moments in the life of our church. And I'm going to want to be here. I know you will be too. And I need to, to tell you that in order to get us uh, to the end of Epiphany, which is today, the Mount of Transfiguration, Transfiguration Sunday, um, we're all up in the, the um, 17th chapter of Matthew here. I've got to tell you a little bit about what happened in the 16th chapter of Matthew. I've got to catch you up a little bit. So may I, may I do that for just a minute or two? Catch you up on what's been going on with Peter? By the time he got to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter had been having kind of an up and down couple of weeks as a student of his teacher and mentor, Jesus. He'd been both ashamed and proud of his performance. On one day, Peter and the other disciples had heard Jesus in dispute with a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, and he had managed to miss Jesus' point entirely, he and all the disciples with him. The Pharisees were a group of powerful men who tried to control the people by demanding that the people's lives conform to the letter of the law of Moses. Because the Pharisees were the ones who got to interpret the law, you can imagine that the poor people and the marginalized people usually didn't fare too well in these arguments, right? The Pharisees always came out ahead in arguments about the law, and the poor always felt abused. The Sadducees were a rival party to the Pharisees who were also prone to argue the law, but they had a different twist on it. They claimed a, a, a lineage, a heritage, that their ancestry made them the ones who ought to be able to interpret the rules for everybody else. They, they said, were descended from the high priest Zadok way on back in the day. Nobody could remember when that was, but they knew they were supposed to remember Zadok, the high priest, and somehow Zadok got to be Sadducees over the years. We're not too interested in all of that. But they were claiming an ancestral privilege. An ancestral privilege to be the ones who got to tell everybody else what to do. And Jesus warned the disciples to beware, he said, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not to let the arguments of the powerful over who was more righteous 
get mixed up in the disciples' own experience of their relationship with the divine parent. It was a good lesson. The problem was Jesus lost the disciples for a few minutes by talking about yeast instead of just being direct about what he was trying to say to them. He made an analogy that didn't work in his sermon. That happens sometimes in sermons. You make an analogy and your people chase off after a red herring that you didn't intend and they miss your point entirely. We preachers have to live and learn how to do that better week after week. And that week, Jesus had trouble with the disciples because he had made an analogy that they didn't get. They kept talking about bread. He was talking about yeast, so they kept talking about bread. And he didn't want to talk about bread at all. He wanted to talk about power. So everyone was frustrated because no one had communicated very well. Then later in the week, Peter had a chance to shine, and he did. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the other disciples reported accurately. They said, some say you're Moses, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say other of the prophets. And Jesus said, you remember, but who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter said, you are the child of God, the Messiah. And for that, Jesus heaped praise on him patted him on the back, even changed his name. He said, Peter, <laughs> Simon, he said, you are a rock, and I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. Peter, Petra, I'm going to call you Peter from now on. You are so much a rock and so important to me. That was a high moment for Peter. But then a day or two later, Jesus began to explain that his trial and execution were coming, and Peter embarrassed himself. Jesus was trying to explain that his suffering and death were the routes by which reconciliation and redemption and new life would be achieved. But Peter wasn't having it. He'd let a little of that power yeast from the Pharisees and the Sadducees drift into his diet. He couldn't believe his friend, the child of God, would let himself be given over to be killed for any cause and he said so and that earned him a rebuke from Jesus do you remember that one get thee behind me Satan right you are thinking about human things Jesus said while I'm thinking about things that are divine poor Peter I give him credit for just hanging in there up one day and down the next, you know he had to have thought several times about just chucking it all and going back to his boat, where the only, you know, the only thing he had to worry about was whether or not he'd embarrass himself with a bad cast of the net, where the rules were clear and life made sense. Don't you know he wanted to just go home several of those days in those couple of weeks? But he kept hanging out with Jesus. So in today's scripture lesson, we find him trudging up a mountain with Jesus and James and John, sticking with his duty, even though he wasn't feeling it. Continuing to put one foot in front of the other, following Jesus, in spite of the fact that he discovered that high moments with Christ are sometimes paired with low moments.
Then they came to the top of the mountain and began an experience Peter would talk about for the rest of his life. There were Moses and Elijah. Talk about the law and the prophets. Here is the very lawgiver and the prophet in chief. And Jesus is walking and talking with them like an equal, like a peer. But in fact, he was superior to them. And it became so apparent that it literally showed up in his appearance. His tunic, like all poor people's tunics, was dusty and dirty, dingy. And it became as white as these beautiful pyramid cloths that Jamie put on the table for us this morning. And all around him, radiance, the Shekinah of God. Amazing. Now you know for the last six days, Peter's been watching every word he said for fear of embarrassing himself again. But the intensity and the beauty of that moment caused him to make one more attempt to say or do something that would be helpful. He offered to honor Jesus and Moses and Elijah by building a little temple for each one, a little house for each one to stay in. And you can understand his motivations for doing that, can't you? Life is so chaotic down on the plain at the bottom of the mountain. Life is so senseless down there. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a place where you could go? A mountain that you could climb up to get an answer. When, when you really needed to know what was right about the law, you could climb that mountain and ask Moses. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you really were wondering what the just thing to do was if you could just go on up there, Reverend Janice, and ask Elijah? What would, wouldn't that be easier than some of the things we do in the back sometimes? <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful if you were sad or hurting, in need of consoling, in need of courage, to be able to go up that mountain and rest at the feet of Jesus and have that radiant light warm your heart. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Peter's motivations were good, and we can understand them. But suddenly, a cloud, backlit with glory. You know God is in the cloud. And a voice that cut through Peter's dream. It wasn't a bad dream, but it wasn't God's dream. God cut through with his voice and he said, This, God said, This is my beloved child. This is my beloved child. I am pleased with this one. Listen to him. And Peter and James and John immediately fell on their faces in reverence and fear of Almighty God. Then came the touch and the message that Peter carried with him like a lamp through the nighttime for the rest of his life. 
He didn't have to be on the mountain to feel it and hear it. Christ's touch and Christ's message went with him through every day of the rest of his life and even through to his own execution. Life didn't always go well for Peter in human terms. But this light went with him and sustained him. Jesus touched Peter and James and John and said, Don't be afraid. How often have we heard that this epiphany season? Don't be afraid. And Peter and James and John were forever transformed. They were themselves transfigured. <laughs> no matter what they faced in the future, they brought to the experience the confidence that the one they served was the beloved child of God. And that proved to be all they needed. Now friends... I once embarrassed myself on the way up a mountain. In 1988, I was a part of a tour group from Lancaster Theological Seminary that went to Central America on a required cross-cultural experience. And I was really mad that I had to go. Was angry because it cost $1,500 that I had to borrow at interest from the bank. And I'd already borrowed more money than I felt comfortable borrowing from the bank to go to school. I didn't want to go. But I was at that time just generally angry at the world. Because about 18 months before, I had gotten the diagnosis that Mark talked about earlier today. I'd been told that I was HIV positive. And had about two years to live. I was mad. And I was fundamentally ashamed. I didn't want to die to begin with. And I sure didn't want to die in the shame that being gay and having AIDS was going to bring to my family. And in those days, it was a shameful thing. <laughs> One of the places on our itinerary on that trip was the Basilica de Los Angeles in Cartago in Costa Rica. And on the trip up there, I made a nuisance of myself to the people traveling with me in the van. Uh, there's another word for it, but let's call it nuisance. <laughs> I complained the whole way up the mountain. Beautiful mountainside. Cartago sits up on the top. All around it are coffee plantations. And all the way up the switchbacks, up the mountain, I complained. So much so that my peers would begin to turn their backs on me and look out the window, you know. And the professor was looking over the back seat and raising his eyebrows at me. We got to the basilica and got out of the van, and just as we did, another bus pulled up and began to let its passengers out. And a man got off of that bus and immediately went down on his knees. He had a baby in one hand and a prayer book in the other. And he began to pray a line 
and take a step forward and pray a line and take a step forward on his knees praying for this baby because you see the Basilica de Los Angeles is one of those places that many Catholics believe that uh, a vision of Mary occurred a young woman saw Mary there many hundreds of years ago and was healed and they believed that the water that comes from the spring there has miraculous healing qualities. Well, that just cut me loose. That just turned my Protestant soul upside down. What are we going going to this Catholic church for? We're not even Catholic, we're Protestant. And we don't believe all of this business about Lourdes and all these other places where you can get uh, miraculous healings. That's just a manipulation of the church to try to get poor people to throw money at it, said I. I was just real good company that day. Just... <laughs> oh, Lord. And here comes this man with this baby up the marble steps and into the anteroom and now beginning to come down the main aisle of the nave. My professor had had enough of me. And he went all the way over to the wall and he crooked his finger at me like this. And he said, come here. And he pointed to the wall. I had been put out when I walked in because everywhere around us, silver and gold, as far as you could see. Another, I thought, sign of idolatry from the church. Oh, no. Every where you could see on these walls from the floor to the ceiling tiny little silver body parts little legs little arms little heads some of the little charms were whole bodies where people had received a healing from something that had taken up their whole selves and all of these were offerings from people who had received their miracle and come back and said thank you to God by pinning that little charm to the wall and literally had wallpapered that cathedral in silver. <laughs> I was so ashamed. I lifted my head and looked at Professor Ringer, who I loved so much, and just as I looked up in real embarrassment, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that man making his way right up to the altar with that baby. And in that man and in my wonderful professor who I loved and who loved me in spite of how I was acting in that moment, I saw Jesus so clearly. And all around me, the beautiful silver and gold that I had thought was idolatrous began to shine like the Shekinah of God. The radiant glow that lets you know you are on holy ground. That was my experience. Well, the anger and hurt and disappointment in my own life that I had dressed up and called righteous indignation and logical disbelief broke down 
before the witness of a man with a baby who believed more in the divinity of Christ than I did. He, a campesino from Costa Rica, unlettered, I suspect, uneducated, knew a great deal more about what had happened on the Mount of Transfiguration than I did with my college degree and almost a seminary degree. And he had proved it by his faith. I was still ashamed of my actions. So I snuck away from the tour group and I went around the back of the cathedral where the little pipe was that was the source of the holy water. And I took a little sip. I didn't have faith enough in that moment to ask for what I really wanted, which was a healing, physical healing for my body. And healing from the shame of being gay and being HIV positive. But I did in that moment muster faith enough to ask God to show me what healing could mean in my life. That was when I was 27 years old. On next 30, on next Thursday, I'm going to be 50 years old. Thanks be to God. In the intervening 23 years, I have moved from a place of abject fear to daily trust in Jesus Christ, the child of God and worker of miracles. I can say that with confidence because I got my miracle. For some reason, I was spared to live and granted a life so abundant, friends, I can't begin to count my riches. But more than years, which I got, but many of my beloved friends did not, I value the true miracle of healing I received that day in Cartago. I received a healing from fear because a faithful person went on his knees to the altar, not even praying for me, but for someone else, but witnessed to me. I received a healing from fear because my beloved professor was there to interpret that experience for me and to help me hear what Holy Spirit was trying so hard to say to my heart. As we approach this table today, I pray that you will receive a release from whatever it is you're afraid of, whatever it is that is worrying you to death, whatever that is, Bring it up here with you and receive again the healing touch of Jesus through the bread and the wine and let yourself be healed. Be healed. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But I believe one day you will look up and realize that by walking forward in faith you were transformed. One other quick word. I don't have the resources to take a trip back to Costa Rica to place my little silver body on the wall. I wish I did. 
Someday I dream of doing so. But I don't make that kind of money. But this week, I found $105 to buy the first linear yard of gutter. Now, I didn't do that so you all would be impressed with me in this moment. I did that for two reasons. The first was because young people like Derek move me so. I want this church to be there for them 50 years and 100 years from now the way it is here for us today. And so I got to do something about the gutters. <laughs> and secondly, I did it out of absolute gratitude to Almighty God for God's unfailing, steadfast love for me. Amen.